Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. <laughs> What's up, guys? What's up? Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you with another solo episode. Today is an interesting topic. So for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I gave you a little foreshadowing. Uh, we're going to talk about a guy named Emanuel Swedenborg today. And he's an interesting he's an interesting cat, you guys. Um, boy, what to say about Swedenborg. I think the... So his name popped up a whole bunch for me when I was researching Mystical Experience. Um... There's all sorts of books that come to mind. Um, a lot of them are really old. Um, that uh, there's there's a book by a guy named Maurice Buck called Cosmic Consciousness. There's a book by William James called Varieties of Religious Experience. And the last chapter in the book is about mysticism, and it talks all about this. Uh, but they're basically collections, or include collections, of well, people's accounts of having mystic experience, um, traveling to heaven and hell, seeing God or angels, having a conversation with, you know, divinities, um, you know, sometimes they're framed in religiously like that. Um, other times they're, they're more like, they're described more like dreams or, you know, um, you know, strange fantasies or, or what have you. I guess it just depends on the era that the person was in, whether they were religious or not. But they're, they have these qualities, certain qualities in common. And it's really interesting. It's like every human being is different. And a lot of people say mystical experiences are the, the consequence of a sick mind. Um, well, if that's the case, if everybody's biologically different, and we're talking about something that's supposed to be some type of a hallucination and not real, um, why would there be consistencies in a mystic experience from person to person across vast stretches of time? I mean, Maurice Buck, uh, just to give you an example, um, he uses um, examples from deep history. You know, he, he talks about well, he talks about certain, uh, like biblical stories, for instance, like the prophets, um, Ezekiel, for instance, as as something like a mystical vision. And he does the same thing with classical philosophers. He does the same thing with, uh, you know, relatively modern poets like Walt Whitman. Uh, it's really interesting that there's these um, consistencies that run through it. You know, it makes you think maybe there's something to it. And the person that we're going to talk about today, Swedenborg, certainly believed there was something to it. It's one of the more interesting examples, and and I did a little bit of a cursory look at the history of who Swedenborg is, because he keeps popping up, you know, and I found out some interesting things. I mean, he, he wrote a tremendous amount, 
And when he started, he was a respected scientist. I mean, if you look Swedenborg up, you're going to see it's impossible to write him off as a religious nut. You know, it's impossible to write him off as some, somebody who was crazy because he made considerable contributions to science and philosophy. Um, a lot of that had to do with um, some mathematics. It had to do with um, techniques for, um, to do with um, creating ore, to, to creating um, certain certain metals, you know. Um, there's all kinds, of, the list goes on and on, and he was highly respected. And then late in his life, he has this religious conver- conversion, and I will talk about it today. I don't want to... I don't want to give give it away too soon, but he has a religious conversion and he starts to focus on mystical experience and ontology and metaphysics. Um, you know, how did we get here? Uh, what's the relationship between the infinite and the finite, between God and the cosmos? He gets really into all this stuff that I love. And it took something away from the man, I believe, Um you know, he's considered to be uh, a, a mystic today. Um, I, I, in fact, I brought him up to um, a respected academic uh, that I'm that I'm in communication with, uh, a panpsychist guy. And I mentioned it to him on Twitter, said, hey, you know, this Swedenborg guy has lots of interesting ideas that run parallel to things that I heard from uh, a different philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who's very well respected. And um, the academic that I'm referring to, he's the one who introduced me to Whitehead. So I thought, for sure, he'd have something to say on it. Crickets. He didn't say a word. Not even a response. Not even a, not even a, little, a little like, you know? Um, and I think the reason is that Swedenborg is considered to be, well, not respectable. He's considered to be, well, not scientific. Even though he was, for the majority of his life, exactly those things, you know? So he's been written off. But he, and he's also got a tremendous amount of parallels with another um, well, rather respected scientist uh, who dipped into the mystical, who we talked about before, a guy named Sir Humphrey Davy. And the parallels between Swedenborg and Sir Humphrey Davy are interesting. So I think that's maybe where I want to begin. Uh, before I do, I want to read a quote because I think it's going to go along with this uh, episode well. And it's from a philosopher named F.H. Bradley. And he's an idealist philosopher. Um, I think he's a Scotsman. I think he was a Scotsman. But a really interesting guy. And uh, he wrote a lot about consciousness and ontology and metaphysics. But he was a respected philosopher. And to this day is. And he said this in, uh, in his book, Appearance and Reality. He said, It seems that what appears must certainly be one. Okay, and I'll just stop for a second. When he says, it seems that what appears, he's talking about appearances. He's talking about, you know, our experience of the world. He says, what appears must certainly be one. And since this unity is not to be discovered in phenomena, the reality threatens to migrate to another world than ours. The one unknown to us and real, the other known and mere appearance. Man, hair standing up on my arms. Um, pilo erection is what's that called? Was, is is the word for that? By the way, hair standing up on my arms when I read that because because what he's saying here is he knows from his philosophical ponderings and from his own intuition that 
that reality is a unity, that everything is one. And you know that, you know, even from a scientific perspective, when you think of things like the Big Bang, you know, everything came from that singularity. Everything came from the same thing, right? So there's a unity in, in the material world. Everything came from the same place. Everything's made up of the same thing, energy and matter, right? Everything is a unity, a closed system, you know? That's why we talk about things like conservation of energy, you know? Everything, everything in our reality is one. And, and Bradley's appealing to this. He's saying, we know that, but when you look around at the world, things don't look like one. Things look like many. And he said that reality threatens to migrate to another world than ours. So he's proposing that where this unity exists isn't in the world of appearances. It's in some other world. It's in some other realm. It's in, it's, it exists in some other way. And that's what he's trying to discover. And he says, he says that, the, that there's one world that's unknown to us, but real. That's whatever's behind our perceptions, whatever the you know, fundamental reality is. And he says that there's this other world that's known to us, but it's not real. It's mere appearances. And that's our world. That's our conscious experience. To go back to something that um, Bernardo Castrup said, and also an idealist philosopher, uh, he makes this argument by saying that um, that appearances are like the dials on an airplane cockpit. That, that when you're flying, you don't need to see what's actually out there. You can just look at the dials, and you can fly perfectly well by the, by the dials. And he, he says that that's what our experience is like. It's like dials on, a, on an airplane cockpit. That what we see in the world when we're walking around and sensing things and talking to people and acting in the world, we're interacting with some kind of symbolic, you know, uh, apparatus. It's not what's really there. It's this veil of perception. And that's what um, mystics have said for forever, that there's some veil of perception that keeps us from seeing what's really there behind our perceptions, what reality is in itself. You know, the um, Hindus talked about this going back 5,000 years. Um, Immanuel Kant talked about this, you know, things in themselves, noumena. Um, so this is all part of this discussion. And, and the idea that that reality might exist in some other world or some parallel world sounds strange and sci-fi and weird and probably, you know, probably not logical and probably false. But no, Bradley doesn't think so. Swedenborg doesn't think so. I don't think so. All right, so this brings me to my introduction. So talking about Swedenborg, um, here's a quote, uh, a couple of quotes that Sweden, from Swedenborg. starts like this. I was once asked how from a philosopher I became a theologian. And I answered in the same manner that fishermen were made disciples by the Lord. And that I also from early youth had been a spiritual fisherman. Water signifies natural truths. Fish, those who are in natural truths. And thence fishermen signify those who investigate and teach truths. Moreover, that theologian does not first study philosophy before he is inaugurated 
as a theologian. Okay, so, um, so, so he's saying basically anybody who thinks deeply enough to get into ideas of metaphysics or religious ideas, they first begin as philosophers. And that's exactly what was the case for Swedenborg. He was a philosopher. He was a scientist. A natural philosopher is what they used to call it back in the day. And he goes on, he says, I was once asked to explain my theology. I replied, these are the two principles of it. That God is one and that there is a conjunction of charity and faith. And I want to focus on that God is one bit, because that's how you know Swedenborg is a mystic. That's how you know he had a mystic experience. Well, we're going to hear about that today, and it's crazy. But he said the same thing Bradley said. All is one. God is one. That is the telltale mark of a mystic. Now, there's a huge amount of similarities between Sir Humphrey Davy who we talked about in the past, who also was a scientist and also had a crazy mystical vision. We talked about that. He, he wrote that down in a book called Consolations in Travel that he published right after, it was published right after he died. Like he wasn't even willing to have that stuff out, you know, in the open until he was gone and couldn't be criticized for it because it was crazy. A couple interesting connections between um, Davy and uh, Swedenborg. Um, they both died in, in, in England. Um, even though Swedenborg wasn't English. Davy was born um, six years after Swedenborg died. So that's sort of interesting. It's almost like what, you know, one picked up where the other one left off. And then there's the visions themselves. Um, Swedenborg uh, has a, uh, a book. He wrote many. One of them is called Earths in the Universe. And much like Davy's Constellations, Earths in the Universe discusses, well, Swedenborg's conversations with spirits and angels, you know, supernatural beings. And just like Davy's Constellations, Davy also had conversations with, his, with a genius, right, his genie, his, his angel, who took him up into heaven to see what heaven was like and the, and the supernatural beings that exist in heaven. And that's exactly what happened to Swedenborg. He goes up into space. He speaks to spirits and angels that exist in various planets in our solar system and beyond. And this is the weird thing. I thought it was so weird when, when Davy said it. When Davy said that he had visions of heaven and he got, he got to physically or spiritually go there and see what heaven is like and see what angels are like and observe them and all that sort of stuff. He didn't do that like... Um, uh, Dionysus the Aeropagite or Dante's Divine Comedy. He didn't do that like, um, um, what's the other one? Uh, Paradise Lost. He didn't, he didn't talk about a spirit guide taking him to the supernatural realm that doesn't exist in the material cosmos, right? That's what you expect. Where is heaven? You know, heaven isn't on Mars. Heaven is in another place altogether. Not for Davy, not for Swedenborg. Heaven is heaven. You look up at the sky. You see the stars. You see the, you see the galaxies. That's literally heaven. That is the, literally the spiritual realm. And I think that is interesting and unexpected. You know, I never would have expected uh, somebody to, to attach spiritual reality to material objects, you know. And both Davy and Swedenborg do this. They go to heaven 
and they experience angels in space, outer fucking space. It's amazing. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk more about that. Okay, so that brings me to the first section I want to talk about. Um, it's called Mirror Worlds. Now, we're talking about a specific book that um, Swedenborg wrote about the relationship of the body and the soul. And so um, that this is strictly what we're looking at today. He wrote way too much for us to cover, you know, any, any fraction of it. So uh, this first section I'm going to call Mirror Worlds. Mirror Worlds. Okay, here we go. Swedenborg says, It has been manifested to me that there are two worlds, one in which all things are spiritual and the other natural, and that spirits and angels live in their own world and men in theirs, and also that every man passes by death from his own world into the other, and in this he lives to eternity, for the spiritual world flows into the natural world and actuates it in all its parts, both with men and with beasts, and also the vegetative activity. All right, so there, there's our opening for you. Some pretty interesting stuff here. So he says there are two worlds, right? And this is why I call this section Mirror Worlds. He refers to two worlds. Just like Bradley referred to two worlds. One of them is spiritual and one of them is natural. And we don't really have a big issue with this. I mean, most modern Western people are pretty steeped in dualism. You know, anybody with a Judeo-Christian background is pretty steeped in the idea of body and soul as different things existing some, somehow together. Um, and so this is kind of what, this is the kind of picture that, that you're seeing with the spiritual world and the natural world. But it's a little different than that. It's a little different than dualism. Because in this case, the spiritual world and the natural world aren't exactly separate, distinct things. And you can tell that because he says that when men die, he says every man passes by death from his own world into the other. And in this, he lives to eternity. So there's a connection between the natural and the spiritual world. And the souls, if, you, if we can call it that, that whatever animates you know matter... Um, that is sort of recycled. It moves from the natural world into the spiritual world, back into the natural world, back into the spiritual world. And you see this sort of recycling going on. That's what he's calling et eternal life. That our lives are eternal, just like, just like uh, was promised in the New Testament. Um, Swedenborg is a religious man, so we're going to see a lot of biblical references. But how that eternal life happens... Is, is through this sort of process, this sort of, it reminds me of conservation of energy and Newton's laws, that energy can't be created or destroyed. That's what we see here. The human soul passes from one world into another. It's not created or destroyed. It just transforms from one state to another. And that process that we're describing of souls going back and forth between these two worlds over and over reminds me of well, Alfred North Whitehead, who I brought up at the beginning of this uh, episode, he was the process philosopher. He's the one that believed um, that the operations of the universe were a process, and that if you could call, you could call that process God, you know, because it's responsible for everything. And uh, that's what we see illustrated from Swedenborg is something like a process. 
Again, he says the spiritual world flows into the natural world and actuates it. And that's true for men, beasts, and, and plants, right? So what does he mean by that? There's something in the spiritual world that actuates the natural world. What does he mean by that? He means something like the thing that animates matter, the thing that makes you alive, that that thing comes from the spiritual world. It's the spiritual part of us that flows into the natural world from where, wherever it comes from, and it fills up matter and makes it alive. So you could call that a soul. You could call it a life force or an animating force. That thing actuates what essentially is dead matter. That matter is alive because it contains the spiritual component. And I think we can understand that. It's not super different from a, you know, everyday uh, Christian understanding of a soul. But he goes on. He says, the spiritual world existed and subsists from its own sun, and the natural world from its own sun. That there is one sun of the spiritual world and another of the natural world is because those worlds are altogether distinct. And a world derives its origin from its sun. The world subsists by means of the sun. If the sun were removed, it would fall into chaos and into nothing. The origin of nature is the sun. All right, so this is not sun, S-O-N. This is sun, S-U-N. He's talking about, he's talking about the stars in the cosmos, specifically our sun, and he's saying, listen, listen, there's two worlds, a spiritual and a natural. And both worlds have a sun. And the sun dictates everything about the world. He said the world derives its origin from its sun. And we know in, in kind of retrospect that it's, that's correct. I mean, not just the energy, the heat and light that, that emanate from the sun creates all you know, the opportunity for life to exist and for transformation to exist in the cosmos. But even the gravity of the sun controls the rotations of the earth and the planets and the seasons and all the things that, that facilitate the life that, as we see it in our planet. So, of course, the sun is going to control the evolution of the star system, the solar system, rather, and it's going to control the, the evolution of life if it emerges. It's going to be the key. And you can imagine a sun that's larger with greater gravity or hotter or colder or two, sun, two stars in a planetary system, that all of these changes would change the, the planets and would change the life or the opportunity for life to emerge on those planets. You would not see the same kind of life existing on another planet with a different type of star system. So, yes, you know, we can, we can validate Swedenborg's suspicion from, from way back in the 1700s uh, that the sun is absolutely um, where the planets derive their origin. And if that sun would just disappear, let's say, it would destroy that planetary system and the life that, that might have evolved on it. The planets would go spinning off into the cosmos and, and that would be it. So this is true, you know. But what does it mean? There's two worlds, and these, these two worlds, the spiritual and natural, have two suns, right? And those suns control what the world is like. 
So what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? All right, he goes on. He says that in the spiritual world, there is a son other than that in the natural world. I can testify, for I have seen it. It appears like our sun, but stands immovable at the middle altitude between the zenith and the horizon. Once the angels have perpetual light and perpetual spring. All right, so this is our first taste of Swedenborg getting mystical. He's saying, look, I'm not just saying that there are two worlds and that, there, and that these suns exist in both worlds. I've seen it. So now he's telling us here that, that he has this, this, this gift, this, this gift of, uh, you know, whether it was a mystical experience or not, he claims to have seen the spiritual world, to have been there and to have seen the sun. And he says some interesting stuff about the spiritual world. Um, the sun doesn't move but stands still. Uh, the, the angelic creatures that exist in the spiritual world have perpetual light and spring. And that's something like we would talk about mythologically as a golden age, you know? A place that, that's always, you know, illuminated by the sun that's never in darkness, you know? A place that's always a pleasant temperature, a place where, well, a place where nothing dies because it's timeless, right? And that's what he... That's what he refers to when he says the, the spiritual sun stands immovable, right? If it stands immovable, then it's timeless. That's why there's no darkness. That's why there's no winter. We're, we're in a timeless place in the spiritual world. And that kind of makes sense. And I have, to, I have to say here that, you know, we've been reading a lot of Jung and his pupils lately on the podcast and talking about them. And so much of these myths and fairy tales, like what, what Neumann and von Franz have told us, um, seems relevant here. I mean, von, von Franz says anytime you're reading a myth or a, or a fairy tale or, or whatever, and somebody finds themselves in a magical place or finds themselves, um, you know, uh, magical things happening around them, supernatural things happening around them, that, that there is a transition that takes place between the world where things make sense the conscious world, in the world where anything could happen, the unconscious world, and that's the world of our myth and fantasies and dreams, and that human beings are a creature that exists in both places, in two worlds, just like Swedenborg's telling us, an unconscious world and a conscious world, a natural world and a spiritual world. So we're using different language, but we're talking the same stuff here. And then I just want to mention that, you know, when you read Davy's Constellations, you see much of the same thing. Um, Davy says, when he's talking about angels, he calls them spiritual natures. And he says, spiritual natures are eternal, and they have no dependence on time. And that's exactly what Swedenborg's showing us. A place where the sun stands still. The timeless, unconscious realm. Amazing. Then he says, the son of the spiritual world is pure love from God. Spiritual things cannot proceed from any other source. By means of this son, the universe was created by God, by which are meant all worlds, which are as many as the stars in the expanse of our heaven. 
All right, so there's some interesting things here. I mean, scientifically, Swedenborg in the 1700s is pointing out that the cosmos is full of planets, which is something that we uh, hadn't been able to to validate at that time. I mean, we could see the planets in our solar solar system. I think, except for except for uh, Pluto, um, I don't think we could see that one. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but the point is, Swedenborg's saying that there are planets, infinite planets that exist all out, th- you know, throughout the cosmos. So that's pretty interesting. He seems to have some scientific knowledge, whether that's a guess or a revelation. He had scientific knowledge that wasn't available to people in the 1700s. That's pretty crazy. But other than that, he's saying here that that the spiritual world, that the son of the spiritual world, is pure love from God. And we're going to figure out what that means as we keep reading. But just bear in mind, we have these two worlds that, that are governed by two sons, the natural and the spiritual. The sun in the spiritual world is pure love from God. And that's the place, Swedenborg says, that all spiritual things come from. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he means by spiritual things. Um, but he will mean what you think he'll mean. Uh, things like your soul, your animating force, the thing that that we that corresponds to life, you know, whatever we point to and we say something is alive or conscious, those are spiritual things. Uh, so we'll get we'll get into that uh, as we go along. All right, then he says, for the created universe is a connected work, as God is one, so also the spiritual Son is one. And this is interesting. So he's telling us something strange here. It's something interesting. He's reminding us that everything is one, that God is one. That's the mystic insight, you know? But then he tells us that the spiritual son is one, right? Because remember, the spiritual son is the love of God. So it's got some connection to God, some deep connection to God. And in fact, Swedenborg says that God is in the midst of the son. So God is one and the Son is one. And that means that the Son that governs the the natural world and the Son that governs the spiritual world are one. You've got one Son governing these two distinct realms of existence. And that's strange because it paints a picture of something that looks like a portal or a bridge, you know? You've got a star that exists in two places at once, in the spiritual realm, and the natural realm. And so it sort of connects the two together. And that's really interesting, the idea that an object that exists in the material world, a burning ball of gas in the cosmos, that that might actually be something powerful enough or something significant enough or something created for the purpose of joining these two worlds. And that may seem strange to you. You might want to write that off. I certainly would have written off mystics my entire life until I had a mystical experience of my own. I would have had no problem saying this guy's a quack. He's being poetic. Um, but he certainly believed it. He believed he had these visions. You know, he abandoned and gave up his his academic success in his life. He was self-publishing his own books towards the end. You know, he believed it. So God is one, and the spiritual son is one. And so it's something like a portal, connecting the conscious to the unconscious, the divine world to the natural world. And that brings us to our next section, which I'm going to call, What is a Star? 
Right, Swedenborg says, from that sun proceed heat and light. The divine love is expressed by fire. God was seen as fire in the bush before Moses, and in like manner on Mount Sinai. The heat of the blood and of animals in general is from no other source than from the love which constitutes their life. This, then, is the reason that the divine love appears to the angels as the sun in their world. Okay, so, at least in the spiritual world, God appears as the sun. And Swedenborg tells us that God is in the midst of that sun, and that that connects directly to the sun that we see when we look up at the, at the sky. It's strange and amazing. But let's, let's dig in a little deeper here, because he did say that the divine love or pure love of God is what comes out of the sun. And so that's something like the animating force, the force of life. And he says so because he says the love which constitutes their life. So the love that flows out of God and flows out of the spiritual sun is whatever, whatever it is that gives us life, the animating force that gives us life. Maybe it's that, that little bit of God that we have in us, you know? the God part of our being. But he says something even more interesting. He says that that divine love that flows out of the spiritual sun, that's the thing that Moses saw. That's the, that's the thing that, uh, you know, um, that, that is represented by the burning bush. And it's connected to heat and light, just like what comes out of our sun. And what the implication here is, is that heat and light are God's love or creative power that seem to be transformed through this portal, through the sun, into physical material form. So let me say that again. You've got this spiritual sun um, where God is, you know, in this other realm, in this divine place. And the power of God is, is coming through that sun and out of our sun. And some sort of transition takes place when when that force, that divine love goes through the portal, it changes from a divine substance, which is love, which is this creative force and animating force of life. And it gets, trans it gets transformed into a physical reality, heat and light. So the creative force that in the divine world you would, you would just call the love of God, that comes through the physical world as heat and light. And here's the kicker. What does heat and light do in the material world? It does exactly what God does in the spiritual world. It creates, right? The heat, the energy from the sun creates our, our solar system. It forms and shapes not only our planets um, and their orbits, but all of the life that exists, the atmosphere you know, everything. So the sun is something like a representation or a manifestation of God in the physical world. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I mean, you might have heard ancient people say that. We're going to get there. But in the modern world, people look up at the sun. They don't see anything mystical. They don't see anything spiritual. They don't see anything unusual. It's ordinary. It's something that's up there all the time, and it doesn't constitute any kind of mystery to us, but hold the phone. Stars are a giant mystery. You know, they were, they were born in the singularity we call the Big Bang, and we know nothing about that. 
And when they die, they become black holes. And we know nothing about them. They're huge mysteries. And I have to ask, is it possible when you think about black holes in particular, when you think about everything getting sucked into them, nothing can avoid their gravity, not even light. Remember, light is the life force that comes from God. And it too gets sucked into a black hole. It cannot escape. And we don't know what's on the other side of the event horizon. We don't know what's on the other side of the black hole. It will always be a mystery to us. So I have to ask, is it possible that what Swedenborg is suggesting, that God, that this spiritual son is what's on the other side? Is that possible? I mean, I can't say no, can I? All right, so we'll continue. He says, I have often seen that spiritual light immensely exceeds natural light in brightness and splendor. For it is as brightness and splendor themselves. All right, so you, you do see this from time to time, especially if you if you go to like religious accounts of uh, individuals that claim to have um, uh, received a message from God or something. Uh, there's always very bright lights involved. It's very common that that they're like they can't even look at it. They have to avert their eyes, that kind of thing. It's just too glorious, you know. And that seems to be what's happened here for Swedenborg. And he says, "Look, I've seen that. I've seen that divine light all the time. You wouldn't believe how bright it is." But he says something interesting. He says it's it far exceeds natural light and brightness and splendor, for it is brightness and splendor themselves. And and that's. That's interesting. It's like brightness and splendor themselves is taking those things as a thing in themselves, not as a part of nature, but as something abstract, you know, as the essence of light and heat, you know, brightness and splendor, let's say. There's something archetypal about that. There's something like universal about that. It's not a thing that's bright. It's brightness itself. And I think that's an allusion to the absolute. It's an allusion to God. It's very archetypal. It's very Jungian, you know. Then he goes on. He says, the Lord calls himself the light which enlightens every man. John 1, 9. That is, that he is the divine truth itself. So, the light that enlightens every man. That's something like, like I said before, the God part of ourselves. It's the thing that makes us alive. It's the thing that makes us conscious. So light, like, like Swedenborg's already said, is the life force that flows from God. It's something like the animating spirit. And what's, and what's interesting to me is that Davy has a very interesting parallel in his vision. Now, he talks about the genie, that, that that's his spirit guide that's taking him around space and showing him the angels. And he calls the angels lights kindled by God's light. So all the beings in the world, humans and, and, and you know angels alike, are lights kindled by God's light. And John 1.9 says, the light which enlightens every man. And that's God. That's the animating spirit. So what we're seeing here is this life, this light that flows through the sun that you know behind the scenes is actually something like the creative spirit of God that's flowing through our sun and Turn, turning into light and heat and causing all the action that, that we're seeing in the cosmos, including our own lives. That's the God part of ourselves. And Davy 
seems to agree. That brings me to my next section, which we're going to call the Sun Bridge. All right, Swedenborg says, It is believed that natural light is from our world, but it is from the light of the sun of the spiritual world. Okay, that's pretty much what I said before, right? The light that flows through our sun isn't coming from our sun. It's coming from its mirror self. It's coming from the unconscious sun, the divine sun that exists in this parallel place we're calling the spiritual world. And in some way, these suns are one sun. They connect these two realms of being, you might say. It's like spiritual life um, life force radiates into being from non-being. And the star is the portal between the worlds. And it's the representation of God. So this is, you know, evidence that, that uh, Swedenborg believes that our sun is literally part of a greater whole. Um, it's, the, it's the active power of God flowing through the material world, becoming the material world from some other place. And he calls that influx, spiritual influx. And we're going to see that next. He says, there is influx from the spirit world into the will and into the understanding from God through the sun in the midst of which he is, right? So he, so God is in the midst of the sun. And what's coming out of the sun is this spiritual, you know, spiritual force, this life force. And he said it, 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 it comes to you know into the world, but it also comes into us, into our will and our understanding. And so that's like our consciousness, our will and our understanding. Those are those are cognitive mental concepts. Our understanding is our ability to to know, to learn, to have knowledge, um, to have a worldview. Our will is our our ability to act, our desires to um, to to act in a particular way. Uh, those are all things that relate to consciousness. And so an idealist like Bradley, who we talked about in the beginning, or a panpsychist, or myself, would agree entirely that this, this life force that flows from God into the material world and into us, it is associated with the God part of us. That's, that's what I call sentience or consciousness. And that's exactly what we see from Swedenborg, the will and the understanding from God. It's also interesting that he splits this up in two, you know, that he's, he's talking about this as will and understanding. And I only point to that because if we go back to our depth psychology and our discussions about Jung, uh, this is what happens to God. God gets divided, split in two. And so that's what we see happening here. God begins as some sort of a wholeness, flows through our sun and becomes bifurcated. You know, in the material world, it becomes will and understanding. And I think that parallels also the heat and light that emanate from the sun. You know, these things are one, but they're also many. And that's, that's also something that you experience in mystic intuition. It's what, what Jung and Jordan Peterson called the syzygy or the Ouroboros. You know, opposites in union. Then he goes on, he says, They who know only of the influx into the understanding and not into the will are like one-eyed persons who see the objects on one side only. Okay. 
So I think Swedenborg is sort of foreshadowing here the kind of physical-only approach to understanding science as though it's incomplete. You know, he says if you, if you believe that knowledge uh, is something that... Um, is something that uh, is divine. You know, that knowledge is something that connects you to um, to God. But if you don't believe that about the will, if you believe that your will is your own and that uh, that you, you know, do what you want and that that, that isn't connected to God in any way, um, he's saying that you're missing something. And it reminds me of, well, it reminds me of a phrase. Uh, it's the title of a book by Philip Goff. It's called Galileo's Error. And a lot of people today, a lot of philosophers and scientists today agree that this idea of uh, dualism, that this idea of mind and body being separate, uh, that it is a mistake. And it was a mistake going all the way back to Galileo or to Descartes, but certainly Descartes. It may go back all the way to Galileo or even before. And Swedenborg seems to agree that we have to be able to think about matter and consciousness together. We have to be able to explain the whole picture. Why? Because everything is one. God is one. The universe is one. And if we can't explain everything we observe in the universe that way, then we're missing something. And I think that's more true today than ever. All right, Swedenborg says, those two, namely heat and light, or love and wisdom, flow from God into the soul, and through this into the mind, and from, and from these into the senses, speech, and actions of the body. Spiritual influx is from the soul into the body. If anyone investigates spiritual influx in any other manner, he is like one who dedu deduces the origin of a tree from the root and not from the seed. So here's another criticism. It's not unlike the, the one we just read. But he does, he, does, he does say something interesting in the beginning. He, he talks about heat and light coming out of the sun as being synonymous with love and wisdom, you know, coming from the spiritual sun, which we've already talked about. But you can see the connection between the spiritual reality, which is love and wisdom, whatever that means, coming from God. You know, the life force and the consciousness that come from God, and they turn into heat and light. They turn into a physical reality. So you have a spiritual reality becoming a physical reality. And so you see, again, the bridge here of the sun being this portal bridging the world. And then he talks about how, how you know, again, when God comes, when this animating force from God comes through the sun, that it goes into our soul and mind, and, and from there into our senses, our speech, and our actions. Um, and, and this is what he means by spiritual influx, that it, that it literally fills all of the material world with the animating force that is God. And then he says, if anyone investigates spiritual influx in any other manner, he is like one who deduces the origin of a tree from its root rather than a seed. So he's saying you're making a mistake if you think any differently than this. That the things we call spiritual, life and consciousness in a nutshell, they come from God. And they fill this material world um, that's been created by 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 God as well, indirectly through the sun, by heat and light. And it, and it reminds me of this idea of emergentism, because when he says anybody who investigates spiritual influx in another manner is nuts, well, that's what, that's what emergentism is. And this is an idea that is popular today, 
uh, probably the most popular explanation for consciousness, which is that it doesn't come from God. That's silly. It emerges from the laws of physics. It emerges from complex activity, uh, physical activity. You have a complex enough system, um, you're going you're gonna to end up with consciousness. Uh, well, lots of people disagree, scientists and philosophers alike. Um, I disagree, and Swedenborg disagrees, and I think that's, that's pretty interesting. All right, then he says, The soul is a recipient of life from God. Who is life in itself? So God, he says, is life in itself. Then he says, all influx is of life, thus from God. So that's saying that everything that exists in the material world is, is, is made of God. And it's made alive also by God. So matter and psyche, or matter and spirit, are both God. And he says this is meant by the passage, and he's referring to the Bible here, God breathed into the nostrils of man the soul of lives and that man became a living soul and as the father have life in him excuse me as the father hath life in himself so hath he given also to the son to have life in himself so we just read a passage from genesis and a passage from john life in himself is god that's what swedenborg's saying so something like god is what flows through the son into being god as light and heat it is this that formed the cosmos and animates the world with life. So life, and what we might call the soul, is synonymous with God. It's also synonymous with the energy that flows from the sun, you know? All right, then Swedenborg says, The natural world was created by God secondarily through the sun. So that's, that's what we've been saying. But it's interesting when he puts it that way, because there are religious traditions that go back a long ways that have this idea of a of a god below god if that makes sense that there is a god that's responsible for creation and then he sort of disappears but not before creating another lower god he's often called the demiurge and that that god is the one that's responsible for creating the cosmos so god just creates the creator and then he disappears and this new God, who, who usually is called the Demiurge, he's sort of masquerading as God. Nobody knows there's a God above him because th that God's disappeared. And this God is the one that's created the cosmos. So this exists as a, again, God creating the world secondarily through an intermediary. That exists already in spiritual traditions. But there's also the idea of the sun God, you know, as, as the high God or the creator God. That's something that you see all over the ancient world. So when, it, when Swedenborg says that God created the cosmos through the sun, you can look at re religions from all over the ancient world, and they worship the sun as the creator. And that makes sense to a certain degree, even scientifically. So the sun is a god. I mean, you might think of Ra, Amun, Aten from the Egyptian uh, pantheon. You might think of Sol or Helios from the Greco-Roman pantheon. There's always a sun god, and he's always an important god. And not just that, it gets deeper. I mean, the sun is a star, you know, and there are other stars in, in, in the heavens, you know, and the ancient people worshipped, well, <laughs> I've said this before, but they... There's a word. It goes way back to the um, Proto-Indo-European language. It's 
div, which means to shine. Div is where we get the word divine from or deity from. You know, div is a, a root word in English, uh, but in lots of other languages that goes way, way, way back deep into our history. And it has to do with how we refer to God. God is, is that which shines. And we're referring to the heavens. We're referring to the stars and the sun. So even that word, that one of the oldest words for deity goes back, you know, to, to the sun, to the stars. To shine. All right, and uh, Swedenborg says, everything which proceeds from this sun, regarded in itself, is dead. Love, regarding in, in itself, is alive. So what he's saying here is that that matter, even though it's created, um, you know, by God the same way that consciousness and life are created by God through the sun that it's not alive without this God part. And so everything, matter of all kinds, energy of all kinds, includes a God part, or maybe it's God all by itself. And we, you know, we don't have a great way of understanding it. And the panpsychists and people like that would, would, would agree with this. So when we, look at, when we look at the world of matter, we don't see dead things. We see created things, that cannot be regarded um, by themselves. They have to be regarded as a combination of this matter and this animating spirit, this, this God part, like I keep saying. Now, if we go back to Sir Humphrey Davy, um, his genius, his angel guide, describes life like this. He, he, he calls it, quote, in every part of the planetary system depends upon the influence of light. So you see the same thing reflected in Davy, the sun and light. And that brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call body and spirit. And Swedenborg starts like this. The spiritual clothes itself with the natural, as a man clothes himself with a garment. Okay, so you can imagine your body like a meat vehicle. And your and your soul, the God part, the animating part, is driving it around. You know, it's wearing it like clothes. And this goes back to what we just said about, uh, you know, matter uh, in the world being alive and, and including God in it as, the, as its animating force. And that's what we see here. We, we have a form, a natural form, call it a man or, or an atom or whatever you want. And, the, the, and those are natural clothes, you know, that go over top of a spiritual reality. And this is a metaphor for everything we've been talking about with the, with the spiritual sun flooding, you know, uh, through our natural sun, the spirit of God, the force of God into the world. And he goes on, he says, in every operation there is an active and a passive, and that from the active alone nothing exists, and nothing from the passive alone it is the same with the spiritual and the natural. Hence, whatever has existed is from the spiritual through the natural. All right, so this goes back to, again, um, when he says that uh, that matter regarded in itself is dead and love regarding it in, its, in itself is alive, that those things are always united in reality. There's always a God part. And he's saying here that nothing exists without both. 
without the matter part and this in the spirit part, the God part. And that's what things are. We can call them two things if we want, but things are not one or the other. They can't be regarded in themselves because in reality, they're one thing, just like God is one thing. Just like Swedenborg tells us, the, the spiritual son is one. All right, and he, he continues, the principal cause, so we can call that God, and the instrumental cause, and this in the examples we've been talking about so far, that's going to be the Son. Okay, so the principal cause, God, and the instrumental cause, the Son, make together one cause. So also do the spiritual and the natural. That these two appear as one is because the spiritual is within the natural, as thought is within speech, and it makes itself felt by means of the natural. So a couple things here. He's emphasizing over and over again the oneness, the unity of what he's describing. And that's, again, telltale uh, intuition from, from mystic, mystical experience. What he says at the end is pretty interesting. He's telling, he's telling us again that, that these two appear as one because the spiritual is within the natural. That's the same metaphor he gave us before about this spiritual um, you know, reality clothed in this natural garment that we, we call matter or body, you know? And he says it's that which makes it felt. What does he mean by that? He said it makes itself felt by means of the natural. And I think what he's saying here is experienced, right? That God is only experienceable through matter by existing in the material world. So what flows through that spiritual sun into the natural world becomes experience, experienceable once it's transformed into matter, you know, so there's something important about that because what God is, if you remember, uh, that spiritual stuff that Swedenborg talks about is consciousness in life. Consciousness is that which experiences. So how is God going to experience? If all is one in the spiritual world, what is there to experience? It's only God. What else is up there for him to experience? Right? So, what, so what's necessary? God must become experienceable. And this happens by the creation of a material reality. And this is all facilitated through, through the sun, through the stars. All right, then he says, what is posterior does not act from itself, but from what is prior, from which it proceeded. And thus, nothing acts except from God. It is the thought which in itself is spiritual, that speaks, and the will which likewise is spiritual, that acts. So this is, this is terrific. I mean, this is something that mirrors something I say all the time. Um, a lot of times I'll end the podcast by telling, by telling my audience that we are the experience God is having. And this is what Swedenborg's telling us. He says, he says, what is posterior does not act from itself, but from what is prior. So what you're seeing here is a, an image of dominoes, a cause and effect. What happens um, by one domino is caused by the one before it, right? And what happens, let's say, in the evolution of life on Earth is, d d is directly dependent on what came before it. And so this is what he's talking about here, this causal chain, this domino effect, and what, what is that first domino? 
that the action on the first domino is God. The first action is God. So every other action that happens in the chain of causal relationships isn't your own action, even if it seems to you like it is. It's the action of God through you. And I think there's something right about that. And then he clarifies this by saying the part of you that acts, um, you know, you rec- in order to act, you have to, you have to be able to think and speak and have a will. And all of those things are required to act. And all of those things, thought and speech and will, are, are come from consciousness. The thing that Swedenborg believes, God is. Amazing. All right, then he says, remove thought from speech is not the mouth dumb. Remove will from action. Do not the hands rest. The union of spiritual things with natural and the appearance of life therefrom may be compared to the sweet must in a grape and to the aromatic odor in cinnamon. The fibers containing all these things are matters which neither taste nor are fragrant from themselves. Okay, so this is awesome. He Here he's talking about the spiritual part of our lives, the God bit. He's talking about life and consciousness, you know? And he says, they're like the sweet must in a grape or the smell of cinnamon. So they, they exist in matter, but matter isn't fragrant. Matter doesn't have a taste. So what he's talking about here is the is something that's front and center in the modern study of consciousness. He's talking about phenomenal consciousness or what we call qualia. So there are things like color and pain and uh, you know uh, smells and um, you know all sorts of things that are critically important to our experience that don't exist in the material world. You know, there's nothing about the spectrum of light that we see as green that is green in the world. Yes, it's a certain spectrum of light. We know that. But what makes it green to us, to our perception, isn't in the object. It's in us somehow. It's part of our consciousness. It's unexplainable by science. You know, the great philosopher, uh, modern philosopher David Chalmers said, it doesn't supervene on the physical. You cannot explain it using the laws of physics. It's something else going on. You know, that's the God part that Swedenborg's pointing to, and I think that's really interesting. He refers to the God part as our private inner lives, as, our, as the qualia that exists within us. The same sorts of things that science can't explain, uh, you know, um, none of them. The philosophers and the scientists, um, you know, that study the brain and the mind and uh, the processes of cognition and all of that, got no answers for this, still to this day. And Swedenborg's pointing to this in the 1700s. Then he says, there is only one life. So I just want to stop there for a second. Uh, yes. When he says that, that God is something like life and consciousness, and the mystic experience tells you that God is one, and that reality is a unity, then, then you, have to, you have to understand that life and consciousness are one, even though they seem to be many, even though they seem to be dissociated and in distinct things. They aren't. And so, because life flo- flows from God and God is one, Swedenborg says there is only one life. Then he says, and this is not capable of being created, but is eminently capable of flowing into forms 
adapted to its reception. So you see this notion, this conservation of energy type of a notion that comes up where he's like, life isn't created or destroyed. There's only one life, the same life that flows through everyone and everything for all of time. It's like that living, conscious thing that's looking out through your eyes is the same thing that's speaking through my microphone. It's the same thing to every person listening right now. That at, at the core of our being, life and consciousness is God, is one. That's amazing. It's very, very mystical. It's hard to understand, but I believe, I believe deeply, deeply true. And this idea that, that God flows into these material forms that are adapted to receiving that, that, that form, um, that's also interesting. It's like material reality are forms to be filled, possessed, or animated with God and made for that purpose ex explicitly, you know? And we, we, you know, this makes sense to us in, in religious ways also because we say things in Christianity like the body is the temple of God. So you understand yourself as a form that is possessed by a spirit. That spirit is God. The thing that's alive in you is God. You know, we kind of understand that even if, even if you know, we don't really think about it much. And also, there's a, there's a, relation here to archetypes when we're talking about young because to, to young archetypes are like that you know like things in the world are forms um, the archetypes are forms um, that that have particular manifestation in the world but can be abstracted and exist abstractly in this unconscious place in this spiritual psychic reality and Sir Humphrey Davy if we go back to him he says something very similar, talking about consciousness, um, the, you know, the divine uh, in general, as being uh, connected to this idea of conservation of energy. Um, Davy says, spiritual essences, like the quantity of atoms, is always the same. So he said that, you know, in Constellations when he's talking about his own visions, you know. So you see this come up again. And then Swedenborg says, God alone acts, and man suffers himself to be acted on. And this is an interesting question because it brings up free will. But I have to say, if your free will is an illusion, which I think maybe it is, maybe it's not, but maybe it is, uh, if it's the act of God, if all of your actions and choices are the, are the actions of God, well, then we, we really can't say that they're not free, can we? All right. That brings me to the next bit here, which is called degrees of influx. And this is, this is where things start to get a little bit technical. Um, so we're going to only focus on this for a second, but then we're going to get into the vision. We're going to get into Swedenborg's vision. Um, and it's interesting. All right, so here we go. Degrees of influx. Swedenborg says, there are three degrees in the spiritual world and in the natural world, according to which all influx takes place. So remember, when he's talking about influx, he's talking about the spiritual force that gets to bridge the gap between the spiritual world and the natural world and flood into the natural world and into ourselves. So this happens in three degrees, he says. All right, and he says, all things in both worlds are of this kind. 
um, as is the expanse of atmosphere from the sun to the earth. There are three atmospheres, both in the spiritual world and the natural world. And because the atmospheres descend from their origins, um, so again, that's God, and are the carriers of light and heat, there are three degrees of light and heat. And because light in the spiritual world is wisdom, and heat is, is love. So in, in uh, the parallels for wisdom and love here are, are sentience or consciousness and life. He said it flows also that there are three degrees of wisdom and three degrees of love. And hence, three degrees of life. For they are graded by those things through which they pass. Hence, it is that there are three angelic heavens. Since the angelic heavens are distinguished into three degrees... Therefore, the human mind is also distinguished into three degrees. Because the human mind is an image of heaven. That is, it is heaven in, in the least form. Hence, it is the man, it is that man can become an angel of one of those three heavens. And this is affected according to his reception of wisdom and love from the Lord. I know that's a mouthful. There's a couple things I want to talk about here. Mostly, um, this idea that comes up that seems to reflect a fractal reality. Now, you see everything happening in threes, and I think that really the gist of this is that everything that flows from, from the divine, from God, into the material world, it, it, they're all mirrored. So we have two worlds, we have two suns, we have three degrees in both places, and everything that comes from God um, in the material world and in the spiritual world is, is, is going to mirror each other. It's like two halves of one coin. And then he says something interesting. He says that the angelic heavens are three, right? And so the human mind is also three. Distinguished in three degrees, he says. Why? Because the human mind is an image of heaven. That is, it is a heaven in its least form. So this is a, this is a fractal a fractal image that, that, that he's alluding to. The human mind is an image of heaven. That's what the, uh, that, what, the way that hermeticism put this, the hermetic philosophy is as above, so below. What, what man is like is what God is like. You know, That's what he's saying here. The human mind is an image of heaven. It's a representation of God. It's like a fractal mirror of God itself. And that's what we continue to see. That Swedenborg's reality, his mystical reality, is something like, like a mirror of, of you know, like, like a unity that's split down the middle, just like the Ouroboros when we talk about uh, you know, our deepest mythology, that the, what's, what God is, the most fundamental thing, is something like the union of opposites that gets split into two. And we have these two worlds that are really one unity. Then there's this bit here at the very end where he says, that man can become an angel in one of the three heavens, and that his ability to do that is dependent on the wisdom and love that he gets from God. So all this spiritual energy flowing through the sun, how much of it gets into us, into our will, into our understanding, into our consciousness, that's going to determine what happens next. When I die, do I, do I get to become an angel? Does my life, does my life force get recycled into this spiritual world and become, you know, a lower angel or a higher angel or whatever? And I think that's neither here nor there. Just the idea that it's possible that this sort of reincarnation idea 
um, and that when a human being dies, that he's able to um, he's able to be reborn in, in you know as an angel. And you see the same thing in in Sir Humphrey Davy's visions and constellations. He talked about he talked about um, you know wisdom and knowledge from God, and the more of that we get, the greater our ability to reincarnate in higher levels of existence. And Davy said specifically on other planets. So we come back as an angel, but we're on Jupiter, you know. And so there's this strange connection to to you know to the celestial bodies as is like the literal place where these other realms can be accessed. And we see the same thing in Swedenborg. So both Davy and Swedenborg, by the way, um, were knighted. I want to tell you, they were both respected academics. Um, Sir Humphrey Davy was knighted. Um, you know, that's why we call him Sir Humphrey Davy. Um, Swedenborg, by the way, used to just be called Swedborg. And the uh, the king or the queen of Sweden um, knighted him, and, and, and his name was changed to Swedenborg. That was the honor that was given to him. I point that out because it's an interesting connection, one of many, but it also tells us how respectable both Davy and Swedenborg were in their day. So as crazy as all this might sound, just understand these were legitimate scientists, respected thinkers, and they were honored in the highest levels possible. Both Davy and Swedenborg believed um, there were multiple heavens and that those heavens exist in the celestial bodies, the planets, the stars, comets, that sort of thing. And that each was populated by its, its own breed of angel. And each were progressively more godlike as they approached the sun. And the sun is the highest, right? It's the highest heaven. It's the source of light and life from God. And Swedenborg says, God is in the midst of the sun. Now, Davy's um, vision, he had a guide, his, his genius or genie, this angel was taking him around. That angel claimed to be from the sun. Isn't that interesting? And that brings us to the vision. So let's hear about Davy's vision. Davy says, excuse me, Swedenborg's vision. Swedenborg says, Spiritual influx has hitherto been deduced from the soul into the body, but not from God into the soul, because no one knew anything concerning the spiritual world and concerning the sun there, from which all spiritual things flow. Now, because it has been granted to me to be in the spiritual world and in the natural world at the same time, and thus to see each world and each sun I am obliged by my conscience to manifest these things. So now he's going to tell us. But I want to just highlight for a second what he just said. He said, nobody's known about, how, about the sun, the spiritual sun, because nobody's seen it before me. He said, I've been granted the ability to live in the spiritual world and the natural world at the same time. And thus to see each world and each sun. And that's so mystical that's a perfect explanation of a mystic experience to be to be alive and conscious in two worlds at once the conscious and the unconscious the mortal and the divine and that's exactly what a mystic experience feels like so he's obliged to tell us uh you know <laughs> what what's what's happened to him since he's been able to exist in both worlds at once and he goes like this 
I prayed to the Lord that I might be permitted to converse with the disciples of Aristotle, and at the same time with the disciples of Descartes and Leibniz, that I might draw forth the opinions of their minds concerning the interaction between the soul and the body. After my prayer, there were present three Aristotelians, three Cartesians, and three Leibnizians, and they stood around me. Those nine men at first spoke to, to one another in a courteous tone, but presently there arose from below a spirit with a torch in his right hand, which he shook before their faces, whereupon they became enemies, for they were seized with the lust of disputing. Then the Aristotelians began to speak, saying, Who does not see that objects flow in through the senses into the soul, and one, as one enters through the doors into a chamber, and that the soul thinks according to such influx? Who can conclude otherwise than that influx is physical? To those statements, the followers of Descartes replied, Alas, you speak from appearances. It is not perception that causes sensation, and perception is of the soul. Excuse me. Is it not perception that causes sensation, and perception is of the soul, not of the organs? Tell, if you can, what else makes the tongue speak but thought? And what makes the hands work but will? What makes the eye to see and the ears to hear and the other organs to feel but the soul? Everyone whose wisdom is above the sensual things of the body concludes that there is no influx of the body into the soul, but of the soul into the body, which we call spiritual influx. All right, so we've, we've heard from two of these groups so far. We've got these ghost philosophers that have been resurrected from, you know, whatever the spiritual world. They're, they're brought present before Swedenborg. These spirits are speaking and they're arguing here about about how God and the material world relate, you know, to what their relationship is. And the, the Aristotelians are saying, look, you know, your senses um, experience what's out there in the world. That flows into your into your brain and causes you to think. That's how you can perceive things. And the you know the followers of Descartes disagree. They say no. What you see is only an appearance. It's not real. And all the ways in which you in, in which you experience things, experience appearance, those things are are happening in something divine, something like consciousness, right? The thoughts, the will, um, the soul is, is what they call it. So there's an influx, that's true, but it's not from the physical, it's from the spiritual. And then we get to Leibniz, it goes like this. When these had been heard, the three supporters of Leibniz lifted up their voices, saying, There is not any influx of the soul into the body, nor of the body into the soul, but there is an instantaneous operation of both together. There appeared again the spirit, with the torch in his hand, and he shook it at the back of their heads, whence their ideas became confused, and they cried out together, Let us decide this dispute by lot, and we will favor whichever comes out first. And they took three pieces of paper and wrote on one of them physical influx, on another spiritual influx, and on the third pre-established harmony. And they put the three pieces of paper into a hat, 
Then they chose one of their number. And on it was written, Spiritual Influx. Then an angel suddenly stood and said, Do not believe that the paper came out by chance. The truth presented itself to the hand of him that drew the lots, that you might favor it. All right, so that's that. The will of God, uh, you know, the, the roll of the dice, um, solved their argument, right? The three different perspectives, whether, um, you know, whether there's physical influx, spiritual influx, or some, some mutual simultaneous combination. And the angel told Swedenborg uh, conclusively that the, that the real answer is spiritual influx. The others, Leibniz and Aristotle, are wrong. And I think that's interesting, and a, a little bit because I kind of come down on the side of Leibniz on this. And I believe that the process that Alfred North Whitehead alludes to um, is not just a recycling of souls from the natural and spiritual world like Swedenborg is, is laid out for us, um, but it's, it's a back and forth, you know, between God and, and the material cosmos and back. Um, I think, and my intuition tells me, that the action of of God on the material cosmos and the action of the material cosmos onto God are reciprocal and simultaneous. You know, I take the God being one to its logical conclusion that there is no material world exactly, that all is one in God, and there is a certain level of illusion involved in our experience, and we call that the veil of perception. You know, we know that. We know that people don't perceive identically. We know that. And we know that there are things happening um, in reality that we, that, we don't, um, that we don't experience, that we can't measure. Um, so there's more out there than what we're aware of. I think maybe a tremendous amount out there that we're unaware of. Maybe an infinite amount. And so this idea of of God and the material cosmos being one, it, to me implies that there that the process involves them both, and that the transformation that happens in the world is something like a transformation happening in God, and they kind of feed back on each other. And it's exactly that feedback that creates fractal geometry, and we see fractal geometry in nature everywhere, at the deepest level, and and fractal geometry requires feedback. So that's the way I see it. And maybe I'm coming down on the side of Leibniz on this. But that brings me to my conclusion. It is strange that our recent foray into Jungian psychology should inform our understanding of Swedenborg so strongly. Just as von Franz presents our myths and stories of the other world as a symbol of the unconscious, Swedenborg describes the same. What appears in our myths is the land of the dead, heaven, paradise, and the fairyland. Swedenborg describes in his vision of the spiritual world. The Jungians speak of human experience as partly conscious and partly unconscious. And so human life, in a manner of speaking, takes place in these two worlds. Philosophers, mystics, and shaman the world over have always insisted that these worlds bleed together, that they are not fully distinct from one another. It is possible, for instance, 
for a shaman to leave his body and to travel in the spiritual world. Our fairy tales describe all sorts of other supernatural means of transitioning from one to the other. Through a fairy mound, through a sacred grove, through the opening in a mountain or a tree, through Jacob's ladder or through a mirror. It is in this way that we can approach the unknown, unexplored depths of ourselves. In dreams, near death, in revelation, in visions, we bridge our world to its other half. And it is exactly this that Swedenborg proclaims. He tells us that the sun exists in both worlds, the natural and the spiritual. It has a mirror twin that counterbalances itself between both worlds. He notes correctly that the influence of the sun both creates and nourishes the planetary system to which it belongs. Gravity, heat, light, and energy. But then he does something novel. He proclaims that these two suns, as with all the stars in the cosmos, bridge the material world to the spiritual one. They are quite literally portals from the unconscious to the conscious. And what flows through these portals? Swedenborg tells us is the divine love of God. Its very essence, which fills the world with life and consciousness. And if that weren't astonishing enough, he describes the mechanism of action. He tells us that God pours his animating spirit from the spiritual world into the natural world by means of a sort of conversion. God's love, the spirit of life, transforms into heat and light in its passage. Something divine becomes something physical. Now, we could write this off as the ramblings of a mystic. We could question his sanity and belittle the state of science to which he would have been exposed in the 18th century. But there is a legitimate mystery to the stars that gives us pause. You see, stars were created in a singularity we call the Big Bang. Now, we can put aside the parallel to mystic unity symbolized here and instead refer to what happens when stars die. They are born in a singularity and die in another we call a black hole. And that's just it. We don't understand black holes. We don't know what they are or where they go and what's on the other side of the event horizon. We know nothing can escape their pool. Not matter, not information, not even light. They are therefore unique among all phenomena we know of. Could there be another sun on the other side? Might we find God there? I can't say yes. But I can't say no either. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.